Hello and welcome to Controversies in Church History, the podcast that takes you through the most interesting, important, and yes, controversial events in the life uh, and history of the Roman Catholic Church. Hello and welcome again. My name is Derek Taylor, your uh, host for this podcast. Uh, welcome all our listeners once again. Thank you for everyone listening out there and uh, keeping the podcast going and appreciate it. If you like, uh, you can find Controversies in Church History on the web at churchcontroversies.com. There you'll find links to all the episodes, uh, which are hosted by Spotify, Spotify for Podcasters, uh, as well as a blog where I post some some original content there and link to my my writings, which are in uh, magazines like Crisis, uh, 1 Peter 5, and other, other venues. I also find us on social media, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, I tweet things occasionally, or whatever it's called, X, you should call it Twix, that'd be easier. Um, And uh, on YouTube as well, our YouTube channel needs to be updated, I will post everything that's been backing up on there soon, Uh, and uh, finally, if you uh, like the podcast, want to keep us going, want to make a donation, that's fine, Uh, you can become a uh, patron on Patreon. Um, there's a list of things you can donate. Uh, there's a few bucks a month, basically, if you want to do that. And do want to thank, as uh, as always, the people who are patrons of the podcast. Very much appreciate it. Humbled by your support. And uh, and thank you again for that. So, uh, welcome again to the podcast. New episode, little single episode here. This is an episode, um, which is one of these things I do occasionally, is take an old blog post and sort of uh, retcon it, re-outfit it for a little episode. And this one was a, actually an article I tried to get published, couldn't find anywhere to take it. And so uh, today is the topic is modernism as colonialism. And, you know, modernism's a favorite of uh, well, the demographic, demographic for this podcast, conservative and traditionalist Roman Catholics, uh, and modernism as the sort of rejection of tradition and, uh, and embracing of modern ideas. I'm using it very loosely in this, this article, but the, the uh, crux of the article is that modernism is kind of like Western colonialism. I'm going to make that comparison throughout the essay in which, you know, you meant to sort of overcome the past that modern colonizers, I'm thinking 19th century, you know, the scramble for Africa and all that, when European powers were trying to carve up the world because they had a, you know, an enormous technological advantage on the rest of the world and viewed the people they colonized as backward, as, you know, uh, as on the wrong side of history to use the current, one of the current phrases, and so the article sort of compares those two things and talks about it. Talks about it through the lens of a book I used to teach in my old Western Civ class. So, uh, without further ado, I'll get to the episode, Modernism as Colonialism. <clears throat> when I used to teach my great books, uh, Western Civilization courses, I gave them a theme. For the modern half of the survey, one of my themes was revolution. My goal was to put it in the minds of students that uh, put, was to put into the minds of the students the destruction that usually that accompanied the creation of our modern world. I mean, social and cultural destruction. At the top of my syllabus for my class, I always put a quotation from Vladimir Lenin to make my point, which goes, quote, Revolution without firing squads is meaningless. Western civilization has experienced many such revolutions in the past 200 years, but we are currently experiencing one right now, which began in the 1960s though it was connected to those earlier events in a distant, to- uh, distant in time, like the French and the Russian revolutions. Uh, our current revolution, which is a cultural revolution, 
is not like those others a matter of violent overthrow, but of constant subversion and disintegration of settled patterns of belief about virtually everything in favor of a vision of progress which the revolutionaries proclaim will liberate the oppressed from their backward past and vindicate the victims who have suffered under it. Every familiar story, every traditional belief must be retconned to meet the current thing, TM, and reflect the latest cultural advancements toward equality, fraternity, or whatever revolutionary ideal is on offer. The icon painter turned cultural guru Jonathan Pajau has elucidated this in detail on his YouTube channel and in his collaboration with Jordan Peterson. Marxists made similar claims in the 19th and 20th centuries, of course, but Marxists were concerned primarily with material life and not beliefs, or what we now call culture. Um, this is what makes the era we live in so different from early revolutions. It is specifically, uh, less specifically aimed at political power or material gain and more towards ideas, beliefs, ideas and beliefs, and the rise of digital media in many forms has made this process uh, ubiquitous and unavoidable. Everyone who is at all concerned about this, especially faithful and traditional Roman Catholics, is quite aware of this phenomenon. You can hardly avoid it, either at your local movie theater, on the internet, or often at your local parish. This sense of having your most cherished beliefs undermined by a seemingly overwhelming force over which you are powerless uh, is not unique to our current revolution, however. Something like it was experienced by the peoples of Africa and Asia in the 19th century when confronted with the colonizing efforts of Western European powers. Nations such as China, which had been long one of the most powerful civilizations of the world for many centuries, watched helplessly as foreign powers carved up spears of influence within its territory and dictated to its now powerless emperors. In doing so, these colonial powers often changed, if not destroyed, ways of life that had not appreciably altered in millennia. The superior technology of the European colonizers went hand-in-hand hand with a narrative of superiority, of the progress of the West and the backwardness and decadence of the East, or at least non-European powers. Even the one exception to this colonization, Japan, warded off colony status by westernizing its own country, bringing Western industry and government to replace traditional Japanese customs. In other words, Western colonialism amounted to a revolution imposed, by, imposed upon colonized peoples. <clears throat> In my course, I included a section on colonialism, and we read two books to learn about this time period, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and the novel Things Fall Apart by Nigerian author Chinua Achebe. Conrad's book famously looked at colonialism from the point of view of a European. Achebe's book Look at it, looked at it from the view of his people, the Igbo of modern-day Nigeria. And it is Achebe's work that can help us understand what we're going through today, both in the wider world, but also in the Catholic Church. <coughs> Excuse me. His novel, Things Fall Apart, tells the story of Okonkwo, uh, a great man among the Igbo people of Western Africa, and the great men of his village. Uh, but his life is turned upside down when he accidentally kills one of his kinsmen, and then is exiled from his village for several years. <clears throat> when he returns uh, years later, he finds Christian missionaries have become a presence in his village, drawing the villagers away from their traditional ways of life. When Christian converts disrupt a traditional ceremony, uh, villagers retaliate by burning down the church. The British colonial authorities then step in, but when Okonkwo attempts to organize resistance to these authorities, he finds that the people of his village are not willing to fight. 
The novel ends with his life becoming a footnote in a report uh, by an oblivious British bureaucrat who plans to write uh, a, a book about the what he calls the pacification of the, of the tribes of the Lower Niger or some, some sort of idiotic title like this. <clears throat> the whole point being that this man who led this full traditional life is reduced to a footnote in the life of this, you know, functionary, this imperial functionary. From my description, you can see why I chose the book, for the British affected a revolution in Igbo society. And Achebe is a, a good, in, a good uh, instance of this. Chinua Achebe was actually the son of converted Christianaries in his, mission, in his village. They were some of the first Christians in his village. Like many African students uh, during the colonial era, uh, he grew up in the 1930s uh, and 40s, he received his education from Christian missionaries, and he came to love Western literature. Uh, the title of his book, if you don't recognize it, is a quotation from a poem by the Irish, um, Irish poet, 20th century Irish poet, William Butler Yeats, called The Second Coming. And he went to university to study literature in Nigeria, but became uh, uh, was dismayed when he read a European novel uh, about African civilization, which depicted African culture in very racist terms, and you know as having no value whatsoever. So this sort of changed his outlook, and he'd already begun to try to recover. I should have mentioned this. His he never, by the way, he never ceased to be a Christian. He remained Christian, but he tried to recover his um, Igbo traditions, kind of in the face of his uh, parents' disapproval. And he set out to write a novel. Um, which would vindicate his, his native Igbo traditions. And in 1958, his, uh, he got his novel, novel uh, Things Fall Apart, published and became an instant success. And so Achebe rose to fame even before Nigeria became independent uh, from British rule in 1960. And then from the 1960s onward, there was a big, massive civil war in Nigeria, and so his country's been in a lot of, had a lot of difficulties since then. <clears throat> but as I mentioned before, uh, he never abandoned his Christian faith, but he wrote several successor novels to this, and in all of them he attempts to recover the traditions of his Igbo ancestors from the oblivion to which British colonization had condemned them. But what makes the novel so interesting is it is not a it's not an anti-colonialist screed. What makes things fall apart so compelling is that Achebe was very aware that there were evils present in Igbo society, Igbo society, Igbo society <laughs> before the British came. Uh, in the novel, missionaries who come to Okonkwo's village, uh, when they first come there, they find that the Igbo abandon twins um, in uh, in the forest. In other words, they think they're they are, they're regarded as an evil omen, so they abandon them in the woods, and the, the, the missionaries come and rescue them and raise them. And this compassion for outcasts is how the missionaries gain a foothold among his among the villagers. And it's also how the dissolution of the village begins, because from there the missionaries begin to attack their customs as being, again, you know, unchristian and uh, anti-Christian or something like this. And Achebe's um, account of this is so fascinating because he never depicts them as thoroughly evil, though some of them are harsh and dismissive of the Igbo. Uh, even the British colonial administrators are depicted less as militant imperialists bent on domination than as self-absorbed drones who think they are bringing enlightenment and civilization to savages. And so they go on destroying what they don't understand. It is easy to sympathize with Okonkwo, but it's Achebe's insight to recognize that traditional societies are sometimes, I mean often, uh, at variance with Christian revelation. The church, in spreading the gospel, has oscillated between the approach of St. Boniface, 
you know, destroying pagan idols without remorse, and baptizing parts of non-Christian cultures, as did Matteo Ricci in China. The church shares much in common with traditional societies like that of the Igbo, but it must be admitted that the bringing the gospel to such societies changes them irrevocably. This is an important point to remember, because modern ideologies like Marxism often imitate Christianity's impulse to transform the world without the benefits that the Christian faith brings to these societies. In our modern society, this, this technique is also present. The, I say that technique of appealing to victims, uh, like the missionaries in a Congo's village. The late René Girard observed how modern society turns Christian compassion for victim, victims on its head, making Christianity the, quote, scapegoat of last resort by radicalizing the concern for victims in an anti-Christian manner, unquote. By doing so, uh, modern society tries to put the church in the same position as the Igbo, a backward society that needs to be, quote-unquote, civilized and updated by the new gospel. The phenomenon we call modernism is, in some respects, an internalization of this attitude on the part of Catholics, especially Catholic intellectuals. This is not surprising, as modernism, I mean, theological modernism, uh, emerges in the church in the same historical context as did colonialism and Darwinism and progressivism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The sense, and I'm talking more here about the, you know, not modernism as a set of doctrines, but as a sort of uh, almost um, felt belief, uh, let's say a move that's less serious than I want to make it sound, this sense that the church is behind the times and it needs enlightened saviors to bring her out of her slumbers. And this idea, this, this conviction that motivated people like Alfred Loisy, George Tyrrell, uh, and other modernists. Um, and like the, in, in this, they sort of uh, have uh, a connection to Europeans who felt it was their duty to bring civilization to the benighted places of the world, such as Africa. Uh, a similar concern to enlightened savages took place across Europe and the United States internally in the late 19th century uh, as nation states, uh, modern nation states, created the first universal education systems uh, whose goal uh, was to turn backward rural peasants, working class laborers, and recently arrived immigrants in certain countries, the United States mostly, into modern bourgeois citizens to make them into um, denizens of a modern society. And the same sort of social Darwinian rhetoric that colonizers used to describe African nations under colonization, savages, those sorts of things, were also, I mean, the very same terms were also directed at populations considered to be backward on the home front. A lot of, for example, educational reformers in late 19th century France refer to these rural peasants in France as savages. Some of them, by the way, were kind of half-literate, so they had reasons to say those sorts of things. But similar mindset. The theologians we call modernists were motivated by similar concerns. Theologians in France especially, but really in Europe generally, uh, have labored under an inferiority complex since the French Revolution that the church's beliefs are somehow just in, you know, it's not even that, but it's intellectual heritage. It's just sort of inferior to modern thinking. And the modernists were inheritors of this complex. Loisy and Tyrrell both came from what you could call, quote-unquote, backward parts of Europe. Tyrrell from Ireland, 
and the Wazee from a rural area of France, rural, rural uh, peasantry. And they both became convinced by their contact with modern thought um, that the church had to abandon its ancestral beliefs. In the late 19th century, ideas like positivism, positivism is the idea that um, knowledge can only be had two ways, either through mathematics and logic or the quote-unquote positive, da positive data of experience, that things like metaphysics and theology were simply nonsense. Um, also, ideas like historicism. Uh, historicism is the idea that effectively every, all cultural, all, all, civil, all, all ideas, beliefs, cultures are effectively historically conditioned. They don't transcend the time, uh, the time, uh, the, the historical context in which they were born. There are no, there are no basically immutable truths, essentially, uh, for the really hard version of historicism. And um, these, you know, first theologians who came into contact with this stuff, like Tyrolit and Wazee, were simply not intellectually equipped to deal with these intellectual forces, and they succumbed to them and therefore tried to make the church embrace these tenets. And this is the stuff that gets condemned in, uh, in Pashendi by Pius X. However, um, even though the doctrines weren't necessarily embraced, the, the sort of mood uh, has outlived the modernists themselves, this feeling that the church has to update. And you can see this in several partisans of what's sometimes called the Nouvelle Theologie. Um, they took up, for example, uh, some hist the historicism that got into the uh, thinking of, of the modernists um, who wanted to wanted the church to adapt in order to you know make it more palatable to the modern world while trying to avoid their their heresies and unsurprisingly some of these nouvelle theologians actually perceive non-western religion religions and cultures in similar terms to the way they viewed the unenlightened church of their day several of these theologians taught courses on world religions such as the young joseph ratzinger and one, uh, Henri de Lubach, who was later made a cardinal, um, made himself a scholar of Buddhism. So they have, you know, contact with non-Christian religions. And in fact, de Lubach makes a comment uh, on non-Christian religions in uh, his book Catholicism, the um, Christ and the Common, Man, Common Destiny of Man, uh, which is revealing. Uh, he says about non-Christian religions, quote, the eternal return from which nothing can be expected with never a forward movement how monotonous it all is. Yet even yet in its toils, the human mass thrashes about vainly in the same unchanging state of servitude, unquote. What made Christianity different, according to the Lubach, was that it was historical. It was changing. It was growing. Um, its ability to change compared to the static understanding of the world of Eastern religions. In a similar vein, his friend, um, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, gave a talk in 1947 on, quote, the spiritual contribution of the Far East, in which he voiced similar sentiments. In contrast to the religious spirit of nations such as Japan, whose racial solidarity produced, quote, an exclusive closed mysticism, unquote, the West was in the vanguard. Quote, the West is the starting point for an advance, a, gen a general breakthrough of spirit, unquote which the East was only now catching up with, quote, yielding from within to an emancipating instinct, and slowly getting underway with its whole spiritual mass to join up, not only technologically, but mystically too, with the road to the West, unquote. The East is static, it's unchanging, incapable of progress. The West is dynamic, progressive, etc., etc. So pretty similar stuff here. However, these attitudes came ver became verboten 
in the 1960s with the final breakup of European empires. You couldn't say this sort of thing anymore um, um, because of this. However, uh, forward-thinking theologians still uh, shared uh, the same contempt for cultural backwardness, which, as you can kind of see, this comes out um, in the 1960s, but now it's only aimed at the church. Just before the opening of the Second Vatican Council in 1962, Cardinal Sunens of Belgium, one of the leaders of the progressive uh, <clears throat> faction at the council, warned his confreres of, quote, the dangers of immobilism, unquote. Immobilism is a French term denoting opposition to social or political progress. After the council, liturgists seeking to, for, to uh, reform the mass disparaged what they called, quote, mythical symbols which lend a mass magic superstitious character to public prayer and devotion, unquote. While others, other liturgists rejoice, quote, once familiar features of the preconciliar rite are now as remote to us as some obscure aboriginal ritual, unquote. For these, um, for these theologians, the church as it existed before the council was now unfit for modern man. And so taking up the, what we'll call the modern man's burden in imitation of Rudyard Kipling, uh, liberal clergymen and theologians proceeded to colonize the institutions of the church from the Vatican uh, Curia down to parish councils um, with the goal, of course, of overcoming the past, the backward looking past. <clears throat> Dietrich von Hildebrand and others recognize the philosophical emptiness uh, that underlies these types of attitudes, the simplistic nature of it. He critiqued the idea that change equals life and that stasis is death in his post-conciliar works such as The Devastated Vineyard. And I think many people today recognize the very crude and sim simplistic nature of this kind of attitude when directed toward other cultures around the world, right? We, we were taught to respect other cultures around the world, even if they're less technologically sophisticated um, than modern Western ones. But somehow, not older Western culture. Um, the Western past is seen as uniquely backward, uniquely uh, corrupt, uniquely bad, apparently. And whether it be the removal of statues, the banning of the traditional Latin rite, or even the burning of books. Yes, people have burned books uh, because they had bad content in them. Uh, they must be wiped from the earth in a sort of modern inversion of St. Boniface's destroying of Donar's oak. If you know the story about St. Boniface, the oak tree was a you know, pagan idol uh, in uh, ancient Germany. So, and uh, no one uh, exemplifies this contradiction better than the current pontiff. Uh, Pope Francis and his ecclesial allies have often inveighed against what they call the ideological colonization of the developing world by proponents of, you know, things like transgenderism and stuff like this. But with regards to the church, the message is quite different. Uh, Francis has repeatedly attacked in what he calls immobilism within the church, uh, even issuing a warning against what he calls restorationism that, quote, kills us all, unquote. Um, the only time I can, I can recall this contradiction being acknowledged uh, was when uh, Cardinal Casper, Cardinal Walter Casper, made uh, disparaging remarks about African bishops in 2014 during the, uh, if you remember this far back, during the Synod on the Family, in which he said, quote, about the African bishops, they should not tell us too much what we have to do, unquote, referring to questions of sexuality. 
Some people complain that Casper's remarks were racist, but I doubt this. Africans are a protected minority in the liberal pantheon, but only if they follow the template which Casper's generation of church leaders used to understand their world. That they are the vanguard of history, and so they are superior to those they have quote-unquote left behind. And anyone who won't get on board with this so-called march of history is cast into the outer darkness, deserving to have their culture destroyed, really. This view of the world, that ceaseless change, even if, and perhaps especially if, it erases one's own heritage, is a sign of vitality and moral rectitude, perhaps made sense in the 1960s, when the baby boom cohort was demographically ascendant and seemed poised to sweep all before them. But now, that cohort, uh, which still dominates the church, uh, makes up what is effectively a geriatric empire of graying older men and women, and the whole idea strikes me as absurd. No dominion is everlasting, wrote Salman Rushdie in his novel Midnight's Children. Rushdie's novel was about the end of the British Empire and the independence of his native India in 1947, and in earthly terms, he was quite correct. God's dominion, however, never ends. As with the Igbo and the peoples of India, faithful Catholics will have to pick up the pieces of their broken heritage and find a way to reconnect with it whenever the dominion of the colonizing power of modernism comes to an end. The histories of those people since decolonization have not always been happy, to say the least. The recovery from what is now a century or more of self-destruction, um, um, even though the church has a divine mandate those people lack, will be painful. Um, the road to restoration will be just as painful, just as messy as it has been for Achebe trying to recover his Igbo traditions. But the promises of Christ and his revelation to the church give us hope that a restoration of sacred tradition will come in time if we but persevere and remain faithful. And that is all for this episode of Controversies in Church History. If you like what you heard, um, please uh, tell a friend about it, share the episode, go like us on uh, social media on our Facebook page, go become uh, a subscriber to YouTube channel, um, check us out on the web at churchcontroversies.com. Uh, and again, if you're so inclined, you can also become a patron of the, uh, of the podcast. You get a few things if you become a patron. You'll get bonus episodes. You'll get some you get episodes without any ads in them. I have some ads on, on uh, Spotify. One ad. Make a little bit of whatever back off of that. Um, also, uh, upcoming uh, episodes and other things going on. Next episode to drop will actually be a bonus episode for patrons patron only episodes short episode hopefully you'll like it enjoy it then you'll also have the next episode of our on, currently ongoing series on the history of latinization of the eastern catholic churches um which the next episode will be uh, next couple of days i hope those two episodes are the next ones um beyond that i have a couple things cooking again to our patrons i do have some more bonus stuff coming i do have it will be interviews God help me if I have to, <laughs> whatever I have to do, it's going to get done. I had the, the, the internet situation has been rectified, so that's coming. Do some interviews hopefully soon. Some more better bonus, bonus content for you and our patrons. And uh, some other interesting stuff coming up. I'll probably release, by the way, the next, uh, normally for patrons, they get, 
if it's a this is one of the things you get as a patron the series episodes like I'll drop it you know first part of the month the episode for subscribers then at the end of the month for everyone else uh, I think I may release that earlier just because I had you know uh, uh, my mother passed and I've just been going through that so I'm kind of behind on that you'll get that next episode a little quicker for everybody but the patrons will get it first and so you have that to look forward to um, in terms of upcoming upcoming items from controversies in church history. And so that is all. Uh, thank you all once again, listeners all, uh, for listening. Um, really appreciate it. Appreciate your support. Uh, keeps me going. And so take care, everyone. Have a great week. Uh, you'll be hearing from me soon. Take care and God bless. <laughs>